0: Good evening again, and greetings in Christ's name. You know, Brent, I think I want to sign up for that seminary. (laughs) That sounds really good. Mm -hmm. So, put my name down. The Westminster Assembly began its deliberations on July the 1st, 1643. Some of the members of the Assembly were concerned about new groups that had appeared in London, to which they gave the title Anabaptist. In 1644, in the midst of a growing controversy, a well-known member of the Westminster Assembly, his name was Stephen Marshall, published a book that was called A Sermon of the Baptizing of Infants, preached in the Abbey Church at Westminster, so Westminster Abbey, At the morning lecture, appointed by the Honorable House of Commons, and this was a part of his task as a member of the Assembly of Divine's meeting at Westminster. One writer called him the most popular preacher, Presbyterian preacher of his day. I think, I'm not sure that this is a perfect comparison, but I think he was the R.C. Sproul of his day. I think that we could view him in that way. Now, you may have never heard of him but he was a popular preacher in London and an important Presbyterian. Now, this sermon that he preached is an intriguing diatribe full of misinformation and innuendo aimed at casting mud against the Anabaptists of England. He wanted as much as possible to be thrown at them, hoping perhaps that some would stick. In opening up the dangers of their opinions, as he says, Marshall writes, first, listen closely to what he says. I see that all who reject the baptizing of infants do and must, upon the same ground, reject the religious observation of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. Namely, because there is not, say they, an express institution or command in the New Testament. Verily, I have hardly either known or read or heard of anyone who hath rejected this of infants, that is, infant baptism, but with it they reject that of the Lord's Day. For Marshall, there was an inevitable relationship between rejecting pedobaptism baptism and rejecting the observance of the first day of the week. So far as he was concerned, the rejection of the one Required the same for the other. But we need to ask how did his opponents understand his point? Now, there are two men, two very important men, two men who were part of the baptized churches. Well, one was and one wasn't. I'll explain that in a moment. But two men make direct reference to Marshall's statement. The particular Baptist was Christopher Blackwood, the other was a man named John Toombs. And I'll talk about Toombs in just a moment. Both of them were university graduates, and they interestingly refuted Marshall in the same fashion. Blackwood, who served churches in Ireland and in Kent, which is the southeasternmost county in England, published a book the same year, later on in the year, with the title, The Storming of Antichrist. And largely, he means infant baptism is Antichrist. But he answers Marshall's criticisms point by point. And here are his words. First, he cites Marshall's objection. He repeats it. You've already heard me quote from Marshall. You'll hear it again, and you'll hear it again when we talk about tombs. Um, Blackwood says this, or, or he refers to Marshall's words. There are three great mischiefs that go along with denying infant baptism. First, they reject the observation of the Lord's Day. That's his summary of Stephen Marshall's argument. He goes on, answer, we deny it, and the generality of those that are against infant's baptism receive it, that is, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, observe it with as due observation as those that accuse them. Indeed, for the Jewish Sabbath, overcommanded by God, it is put to an end, Colossians 2.16, else it stands in force yet, and that being put to an end, we observe the Lord's day, the first day of the week, from the Apostle's example and the morality of the fourth commandment, which requires one day and seven. Now, this is an important start that we're making. See, Blackwood's denial of Marshall's objection is direct and to the point. He indicates that the generality, pardon me, of the Baptists observed the Lord's Day, basing their observance on two key factors— Namely, the example of the apostles, and even more interesting for us, the morality of the fourth commandment, right? That's how he responds to Stephen Marshall. He says, Marshall is making a mistake. We deny infant baptism. We observe the first day of the week as a Christian Sabbath. John Toombs is the other. John Toombs is a really interesting character. Some of you have talked to me about my brother, Mike he did his PhD work on John Toombs. Toombs was a faithful Anglican. He never left the Church of England, but he was also a committed anti-Pedobaptist. That is, he wrote against infant baptism and in favor of believer's baptism. In fact, probably most of the works in defense of believer's baptism that were written in the 17th century depend upon John Toombs. He was a true scholar. He, in 1645 published a work entitled An Examine of the Sermon of Mr. Stephen Marshall about Infant Baptism. Toombs addresses the Presbyterian's comments about the Sabbath and the Baptists at great length under the heading, this is what it's called, the anti principle overthrows not the Lord's Day. The Pedobaptist principle reduces to Judaism and Popish ceremonies and adds to the gospel. Wow see, Marshall had asserted that the Baptists do and must reject the Sabbath. Tombs is indignant in his reply. So here we go again. First he cites Marshall, paraphrasing him, quoting him, and then he gives his own response. This is a longer quotation than the previous one. Please bear with me. Addressing Marshall, you say... I see that all that reject the baptizing of infants do and must, upon the same grounds, reject the religious observation of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath, namely because there is not, say they, an expressed institution or command in the New Testament. That's the third time we've heard Marshall's words. Okay, So this this is an accurate representation of what Stephen Marshall, the R.C. Sproul of his day, said. I don't mean in any way to impugn the reputation of R.C. Sproul. Not at all. Just comparing because of popularity. This is Tombs in reply. Give me leave to take up the words of him in the poet. What a word hath gotten out of the hedge of your teeth. They do, they must, though I doubt not of your will, yet I see you lack some skill in pleading for the Lord's day that others have the truth in that it is neither so nor so. They neither do nor must reject upon the same ground the Lord's day. Again, quoting Marshall. That they do not, I can speak for one, nor must they, and to make that good, let us consider their ground as you mention it. Their ground, you say, is because there is not an express institution or command in the New Testament. This then is their principle, as Marshall understands it, that what hath not an express institution or command in the New Testament is to be rejected. But give me leave to tell you that you leave out two explications that are needful to be taken in. First, that when they say so, they mean it of positive, instituted worship, consisting in outward rites, such as circumcision, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are, which have nothing moral or natural in them, but are in whole and in part ceremonial. For that which is natural or moral in worship They allow an institution or command in the Old Testament as obligatory to Christians, and such do they conceive a Sabbath to be, as being of the law of nature, that outward worship being due to God, days are due to God to that end, and therefore even in paradise, Eden, appointed from the creation. And in all nations, in all ages observed, enough to prove so much to be of the law of nature, and therefore the fourth commandment justly put among the morals. Now circumcision hath nothing moral in it, it is merely positive, neither from the beginning, nor observed by all nations in all ages, nor in the Decalogue, and therefore a Sabbath may stand, though it fall, infant baptism. Now do you see what both Blackwood and Tombs do? They argue that Marshall has failed to consider a well-established hermeneutical principle and in failing to do so has drawn faulty conclusions. Baptism, circumcision, and the Lord's Supper are not in the same category as the Lord's Day. They are positive laws tied to a particular historical covenant. The Sabbath is a moral law revealed to adamant creation, and written on the hearts of all people. You see, Marshall was guilty of the fallacy of category error, and Blackwood and Toombs called him out on this. I've wondered sometimes how he took their critique, because he ought to have known better. They had a really solid argument against him. Now, this debate is a helpful introduction to our study today, as it illustrates a very important perspective on law and gospel as it was understood in the post-Reformation era. And this is a distinction that we've mentioned many times this weekend between two kinds of law that are revealed in Scripture, moral law and positive law, and this distinction is essential to an understanding of the doctrine as taught in the Second London Confession, really as taught in post-Reformation history. Let me go over again some things that I've already said. Moral law is also called natural law, and it refers to the law written on Adam's heart as part of his image-bearing. It is general revelation, that is, it is available to all people at all times, and it is the basis for their judgment and for their condemnation, As sinners, the two great commandments, as summaries of the Ten Commandments, are the essence of the moral law. Positive law, when considered in religious or theological matters, is dependent on special revelation and is specifically tied to an historical covenant. Circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper, dietary restrictions, all of these things are positive laws. Prior to their revelation, they are unknown and they have no obligation. They may be annulled or terminated by divine will when a covenant changes. And this is the point of Hebrews 7.12, which says, For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. The writer to the Hebrews says that the Old Testament positive laws were canceled when Christ the high priest Offered himself. Now, this is in the context of of saying that Christ was not a priest after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And so the Aaronic priesthood and those laws that belong to the Aaronic priesthood under the Mosaic covenant are done away because our high priest is of the order of Melchizedek and he ushers in new laws. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and Abram was never baptized. But neither of these um, facts violate positive laws. I think I said it last night, you may eat bacon to the glory of God. Now, a proper study of our confessions must consider the theological soil out of which they grow. Every creed has a context, and for orthodox confessions, it is the entire history of the church preceding that document. A good confession uses language and theological concepts that have been carefully defined by the best theologians and adopted widely across the spectrum of Christians. The shape and color of the flowers and the nourishing benefits of the harvest all depend upon their lineage. Like heirloom vegetables, Orthodox creeds have been nurtured for centuries and they yield a wholesome and healthy crop. Our English Puritan confessions are just like this. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists in 1658, and the Second London Confession all rely on long-employed technical terms, familiar phraseology, and careful distinctions. They are the fruit of more than 1,300 years of creedal theology. And every careful study of these documents must take this historical theology into account in order to render a proper interpretation of the text. Without doing so, we will simply have postmodern comments on the confession, this is what it means to me, devoid of any real usefulness. It doesn't matter what it means to me or what it means to you. What matters is what the men who wrote it intended. Now, we can disagree with them, but we need to do so honestly, not surreptitiously. If we are to study law and the Second London Confession of Faith, we must understand some precise terminology and observe some careful distinctions. These three documents reflect the consensus of the post-Reformation churches of England, and they use language that would have been immediately familiar and recognized by all. It was especially important for the Congregationalists and for the Baptists to do this For by 1658 and 1677, they were battling both a growing antinomianism on the left-wing fringe of English descent, as well as a serious deviation from the doctrine of justification spearheaded by no one less than the mainstream Richard Baxter. Careful definition for law and gospel was essential to the proclamation of the good news about Christ and for the spiritual health of the people in their churches." Now, I don't want to just assert these things to you, nor do I want to insist that because someone in history said these things, we have to receive them. I want you to turn with me to the New Testament, to the Word of God, to an important text, and I want to spend a good bit of time exegeting this text, hopefully to make my point. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Please turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I will read verses 17 through 24. Now, I have to say this. If you have an ESV on your lap, please close it. ESV is a fine translation. And actually, the way it renders verse 19 is okay. But I want to suggest to you that the way that it's rendered in the ESV obscures some things. There's a structure to this verse, as Paul wrote it, that is better picked up. It's not, even my New King James Version is not exact but it's much better than the ESV. You know, I think about it like this. Several years ago, I had to have cataract surgery on both of my eyes. They were getting cloudy, and I was having difficulty seeing things. What I saw was true, but it was obscured. I couldn't believe, after I had the surgery, how different it was. We, I, I had it after we moved into our home in Texas. And I looked around, and I said, that's what color these walls are? Because I couldn't tell before. My, my eyes were browned, in a sense. From the cataracts. Well, I think that that's what the ESV translation is like. It gives the truth, but it obscures something about what Paul says. So if you have the ESV, if you have it on a Bible app, get something else, preferably uh, the New King James Version or the original King James Version, I think is fine. But if you don't have that, listen to the way that it reads, okay? Now, I'll, I'll read verses 17 through 24. Our focus of attention is verse 19. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised, let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters." Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be free, be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he was called while free as Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now, verse 19 is the focus of our attention And it demonstrates a key theological distinction that is rooted in Scripture. It is the fundamental distinction between moral law and positive law. Now, I want to spend a lot of time on this. I put it this way. In Scripture, not all commands are created equal. Both the Bible and Reformed theology recognize this fact. And we cannot and we must not treat all forms of law as if they are the same. Now, I want you to do something with me, I have a a mental exercise that I want you to be involved with me in. And I'm gonna do it in English and then I'm gonna break a rule and I'm gonna do it in Greek. I'll tell you why, okay? I want you to imagine five lines, okay? And we're gonna fill in the lines so we can see the parallelism in the verse. This is where if you look at your ESV, you'll see that they have obscured what is clear parallelism, in what Paul writes, okay? So, top line, circumcision is nothing, okay? Mentally, do you have that on your top line? Second line, and, it's the only word, it connects the top line and the third line. The third line, uncircumcision is nothing. Now, you notice that there's a parallel there. Circumcision is nothing, second line and, third line, uncircumcision is nothing, then we have a but in the fourth line. And then finally, obedience to the commands of God. Now, we'll get to all of those things here. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, calls this one of the more remarkable statements that Paul ever made. In the immediate context, the apostle is dealing with the condition or status that is in force when a person comes to be a believer. In effect, he argues that we are to be what we were when called to faith. If slaves, let us remain as slaves. God's providence placed us there. If circumcised or uncircumcised, we serve God in that condition. The outward is irrelevant. Now, what is especially interesting is the construction of the verse. So here's where I break the rule. We tell our students, generally speaking, don't use Greek in your sermons. But I want to do so... And even if you can't read or understand Greek, I want you to listen to the cadence and also to the way that this is put together because it helps you to see the parallelism. So now we have five lines again. These are the five lines in Greek. The first one, circumcision is nothing. It says this, He peritome, circumcision, Uden estin. He peritome, Uden estin. Kai, that's the end. He acrobustia Uden esten. Hear the same phrase, the same words repeated, okay? This is why I wish that the ESV carried this out, because Paul clearly is making a parallel comment here. So, hey, peritomi, uden esten. Circumcision is nothing. Kai, and. Hey, acrobustia, uncircumcision, uden esten. Now, the next word that Paul uses is a very interesting word. It's Allah. It's translated into the English But. And that's a very proper way to transfer, to to translate the word. However, what we need to recognize about but is that it's a conjunction that sends us in a different direction or introduces a new thought. It's very distinctive, it's disjunctive in the way that it puts things together. So when you see Allah, you ought to expect a new idea is being introduced. The fifth line, so you got the lines there, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but... The last line is also fascinating because our English translations really struggle to render what Paul says. Now, it, yours, uh, I think here in the, uh, the NKJV, it says, keeping the commandments of God. Now, when I look at that in the English and I see the word keeping, you know what I think of? A participle, a verb. That's what I think of. But the problem is there is no verb verb in this last line of 1 Corinthians 7.19. It's not a participle. It's actually a noun. There are three nouns here. And so when you say keeping, it sounds like Paul is using an action verb, but he's not. Okay. It, I've struggled to come up with an English word properly to translate this, and my suggestion is something like this. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but obedience to the commands of God, and it stops there. That's all it says. Okay? So there's no verb. Obedience to the commands of God. The first two statements are parallel. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But the third is elliptical. That is, it requires something to complete the thought. The noun, terasis is not a participle, and it's difficult to render into English, we have no precise term to use. Some translations make it keeping or observing. These are participles, verbal nouns, but they cause us to think that this is a verb in the clause. Let Let me give you another example from elsewhere. Imagine that in Romans 10, Paul were to make a similar comparison in support of his argument that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, right? You're familiar with that? As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, this is how faith comes, by hearing and hearing by the word of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Well, if he were to make a parallel like this, he might say something like this, literacy is nothing, and illiteracy is nothing, but ears for the words of God. Then you have to fill in the rest, okay? Literacy is nothing, and illiteracy is nothing, but ears for the words of God. Whether or not one is able to read is ultimately not relevant to salvation because normally God uses the preached word to save sinners. Now, he does save people as they read the Bible, but normally it's through the preached word that he saves sinners. So we have here a statement that in English is easier for us to comprehend. We recognize that we must supply a verb in order for the sentence to be complete, and it's fairly obvious what that verb should be. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 7.19. A helpful rendering might be obedience to God's commands, or perhaps observance of God's commands, but it's still not a complete thought, is it? Literally what Paul says is circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but obedience to the commands of God we have to fill in the blank so what do we supply what do we what are we to say here well it seems that in order to complete the thought it's obvious what we ought to say we ought to say what's the opposite of nothing it's everything see that's the point that Paul is making In effect, the latter is the opposite of nothing. It's not just something, but it's everything. Paul says to observe or obedience to the commandments of God is that which is essential. Now, there are some things that we need to notice here. First, there is a sharp contrast in Paul's words between the ceremonial or the positive and the commandments of God. Remember what I said about that conjunction allah that it's very strong, it's disjunctive, it's contrastive. And there can be no question of the Apostle's meaning in this place. The first two elements of the sentence, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, and the conditions that are stated there are different from that which exists in the third. The first two belong together because they describe a, 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 a condition related to circumcision or not. But the last statement is very different. It doesn't match. George Knight said this, The fulfillment motif also plays a significantly crucial role in the whole question of the continuation of the ceremonial law and its requirements. The issue is clearly stated twice over in Acts 15. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Pardon me, that's verse 1. I always have a problem when I preach after I eat. So this is my please excuse me that if I need to keep on doing it I've said it so it will repeat if that happens again. Thank you. Let me go on with the quotation from Knight. It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Acts fifteen five. The question is finally and ultimately resolved by the recognition of Scripture's teaching in Amos nine eleven through twelve cited in Acts fifteen fifteen through eighteen that in the age of messianic fulfillment the Gentiles would be received as Gentiles among God's people, not as those observing the ceremonial requirements given by God to the Jews. In accord with this understanding, Paul will speak of the ceremonial ordinance aspects of the law that had been a barrier between Jew and Gentile as abolished in the death of Christ, Ephesians 2.15, while still commending the moral aspects of the law to the predominantly Gentile church in the same letter, 5:31 531 and 61 through3, which we've already heard about. So he does away with the, cer- uh, the, the ceremonial, but he upholds the moral in the same letter. This is the same approach he takes in many of his other letters. The most telling and terse statement to that effect is in 1 Corinthians 7:19, where the two aspects are dealt with in one verse. One indicated is not relevant and the other indicated as being of continuing obligation and necessity, this is his translation, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. I can live with that, although I like is everything even better. Since the, go on with night. Since the scriptures were written for our instruction, we should also understand what they say about the rituals and ceremonies in the light of apostolic understanding of the teaching of those very Old Testament scriptures themselves. Now, brothers and sisters, this is our point Precisely. The ceremonial of the Old Testament is done away. But something else is fundamentally important, and that is the commands of God. See the contrast here. This begs the question, what are those commands? Well, again, we can look more closely into the text. The plural term that Paul uses, entelone, is of real interest. Again, I go back to Gordon Fee. He says this, Paul tends to use this word ordinarily to refer to the individual commandments, and what he means by that is individual members of the ten commandments. He cites Romans 7, 8 through 13, where there is one commandment that slays Paul. He also turns our attention to Romans 13. I'm sorry, Romans, uh, yeah, Romans 13. Uh, what are the commandments that we find in these two texts? In Romans 7, it's the 10th commandment. In Romans 13, well, look there with me. Just for a moment. Let's let's look there. Romans 13, verse 9. I'll read verse 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For who loves another has fulfilled the law. Seems to me that's the second great commandment, isn't it? But he goes on then to tell us what the second great commandment is about. For the commandments, plural, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul repeats himself, but now by citing an Old Testament text. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. In Paul's order here in verse 9, the commandments are listed as the 7th, the 6th, the 8th, the ninth, and the 10th. What is it that matters, and what is it that does not matter? Well, the outward ceremonial elements of the old covenant have passed away. For the Jews, they may continue to live with them. You don't find the apostles telling the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that they have to stop being Jews. The controversy was over whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews, and that's what Paul was willing to fight for. Um, I try to imagine that scene in Antioch and then at the council in Jerusalem. They, the Jews could continue to live in these things, but they are really irrelevant. And for Gentiles, they are completely irrelevant. Their lives are not ordered by the stipulations of Judaism, but rather by the commandments of God. Now... So, come back with me again to 1 Corinthians 7.19. We might translate the verse this way, circumcision is nothing. Now, just for a moment, think about who wrote those words. The most Jewish of men before his conversion. A man who wanted to see the church eliminated from the world because he believed it was in opposition to Judaism. A man who was committed with all of his heart to circumcision and the whole system that it represented in the Mosaic Law. It's astounding to think of him saying these things. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. The ceremonial, the positive, is nothing, but obedience to or observance of the commands of God is everything. Again, to summarize... The ceremonial is irrelevant, that belonged to the Mosaic law, but there are still commands, that is, Old Testament commands, moral law, that must be kept. You see, you see the distinction here? It's really amazing when you look at it. And this is one of several texts in Scripture which serve as a basis for this fundamental distinction. Not all law belongs to the same category. Blackwood and Tombs pointed this out, Marshall would have immediately recognized their argument because his theology was also based upon this principle, a distinction between moral and positive, between old and new. And we see this distinction is carefully maintained in our confession of faith. I want you to notice some places with me. Now that we have a background from the Word of God, we can see how it's present in our confession. Turn to paragraph four, I'm sorry, chapter four. In the Confession of Faith, chapter 4, the first paragraph speaks about the reality of creation, that the triune God brought all things into being. The second paragraph deals with the creation of Adam and Eve. After God had made all of the creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. We've said that the image of God is defined morally here. These are quotations from Colossians and Ephesians, bringing them together. Having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So this law of nature, what later comes to be called the moral law, is written on the heart of Adam and Eve. But then look at paragraph 3. Besides, we might say in addition to, remember the way I said plus? Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 are the verses that are conflated here to define for us the image of God, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. This definition must be noted carefully because the likeness is moral. John Owen puts it this way, God made, made man in his own image, that is, in such a rectitude of nature as represented his righteousness and holiness in such a state and condition as had a reflection on it of his power and rule. The former was the substance of it, the latter a necessary consequent thereof. This representation, I say, of God in power and rule was not the image of God wherein man was created, but a consequent of it. And then Nehemiah Cox stating this, Concerning the condition of man before his fall, we may observe these things. First, God made him a reasonable creature and endued him with original righteousness, which was a perfection necessary to enable him to answer the end or the purpose of his creation. Eminently in this respect, he is said to be created in the image of God and to be made upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29. This uprightness or rectitude of nature consisted in the perfect harmony of his soul with that law of God, which he was made under and subjected to. He goes on. This was an eternal law and an invariable rule of righteousness by which those things that are agreeable to the holiness and rectitude of the divine nature were required and whatever is contrary to it was prohibited. This law was only internal and subjective subjective to Adam, being communicated to him with his reasonable nature and written in his heart so that he needed no external revelation to perfect his knowledge of it. And therefore, in the history of his creation, there is no other account given of it but what is comprised in this, and which is twice repeated, that he was made in the image of God. The apostle teaches us this consists in righteousness and true holiness. The sum of this law was afterward given in ten words on Mount Sinai, and yet more briefly by Christ, who reduced it to two great commands, respecting our duty both to God and our neighbor." And this is a law and rule of righteousness in its own nature, immutable and invariable, as is the nature and will of God himself, whose holiness is stamped on it and represented by it. You see, when Adam and Eve were created, they weren't moral neuters waiting for programming. Rather, as creatures bearing the divine image, knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, they were given an internal understanding of God's law, the transcript of his own moral perfection. That's how they bore his image, by reflecting to him, back to him, his righteousness. Paragraph 3 of chapter 4 introduces the concept of positive law. And it's interesting that the Baptists separate paragraph 3 from paragraph 2, which is not the case in the Westminster Confession. They run them together. Listen to this quotation from Edward Stillingfleet, and then a dilution of it, or a, um, not a dilution of short of ab- abbreviated version of it from Edward Hutchinson a particular baptist stilling fleet an anglican theologian says this as to the matter of the law the question is not of those things which are therefore commanded because they are intrinsically good as the precepts of the natural or moral law but of those things which are therefore only good because god commands them that is things merely positive whose worth and value ariseth not from the intrinsic weight of the things But from the external impress of divine authority upon them. Now let me distill that for you, because this I find very, very helpful. Writing in sixteen seventy-five, the particular Baptist Edward Hutchinson put it like this: For as well as one well observes, and I have a feeling he's referring to Stillingfleet, as one well observes, moral laws are good and therefore commanded, but positive worship is commanded and therefore good. Now think about that distinction just for a moment. Moral laws are good. They are eternally good. They reflect the being of God, and for that reason they are commanded to us. But positive laws are commanded to us, and that's what makes them good. See the difference? I think that's a very clever and helpful way of speaking about these things. They were given an external commandment beside what is written on the heart, a direct command not to eat of one specific tree. That's all. Do not do this one thing. Apart from this revelation, they would have been free to eat of the tree, for God did not restrict them. Now, by the way, this is an aside. This is an important part of the formulation of the doctrine of Christian liberty. Because the doctrine of Christian liberty says this, only God has a right to formulate positive law in religious matters. No human authority can add to God's law, can make specific restrictions or expectations for humans. But that's the aside. Now, the result of this was what happened to Adam and Eve in obedience, without reference to the fall. Their sin is not in mind in this statement. While they kept the commandment, they enjoyed communion with God and they maintained the dominion that was given to them. Well, Time is running out. If we were to look at chapter 6, we would see that the distinction is mentioned again, in fact, two times. Chapter 6, paragraph 1. Although God created man upright and perfect, that's the moral law, and gave him a righteous law which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach of it, that's positive law, skipping down. Yet he did not abide long in this honor, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. When it reads, did willfully transgress the law of their creation, speaking about moral law, Then it says, and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, that's positive law. Twice in this paragraph, the distinction is maintained. Oh, there's so much more that I wanted to say. Um, Turn to chapter 8 about Christ our mediator. The third paragraph. The moral law is described here. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. But the next paragraph addresses the uh, the, the, the positive law. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his father, making intercession, and shall return to judgment and angels at the end of the world. If that's all that I said in the last 45 minutes, it was worth it all to read that. Well, Let me see. Where else do we want to go? We'll skip over... I I suppose I just want to look at chapter 11 for a moment. And uh, there's, there's other places, but time has run away, and I want to give Dr. Barcelos plenty of time because he's got a lot of material that he wants to cover. Chapter 11 of Justification. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death death for their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which they have not of themselves, but of God. There we have the moral law and the positive law. Christ came and satisfied all of our needs in his death. When we place our faith in him, he grants this to us. Well, we could look at chapter 19. We could look at chapter 21 of Christian liberty. We could look at chapter 22, where the, uh, the necessity of observing the first day of the week as a Sabbath Uh, Did you ever notice that it's called a positive hyphen moral command? It's moral in that time is to be given to God. It's positive in that God is free to change the day on which the worship is to be given to him. So it changes from the seventh to the first day of the week. Well, it's very clear that our confessing fathers maintain this distinction and we must apply it also. It helpfully reflects both the abiding moral righteousness of God and the changes that come as a result of differing historical covenants. As chapter 13 reminds us, the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after in heavenly life and evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed to them. As we love the Lord... We seek to follow his word in all that it teaches us. Now, there's a P.S. that I'm going to add. It's not in my notes, but I'll add it. I have a great deal of love and respect for Presbyterians. I spent 20 years teaching at a Presbyterian seminary. I love those men. But I think that this is one of the strongest arguments that we have in favor of the doctrine of believers' baptism. That when there is a change of covenant, there is a change of law. Or change of priesthood, there is a change of law. Circumcision went away and died with the old covenant. Baptism is given to us in the new covenant and it is the scripture of the new covenant that ought to define for us the nature of baptism. That's why you find the responses to Stephen Marshall in writings about baptism. He made the mistake of conflating the denial of infant baptism with a denial of the Sabbath Blackwood and Tombs very well responded to him in order, as part of their support for believers' baptism. If you practice pedobaptism, baptism if you're in the room, please be assured of my love for you, my appreciation for you. We are greatly in debt to you. But we also humbly believe that you're wrong, and that the Word of God requires us to practice a New Testament ordinance according to the precepts of the New Testament We are Baptists, and we believe that the Word of God teaches us. that. Well, let's pray together. O Lord, your Word is so full of wonder and beauty, instruction. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for this amazing text that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. Thank you that we are freed from the burdens of the ceremonial law, That we are given freedom in Christ, that no one can impose upon us religious duties that you have not required. Thank you for our Savior who satisfied our debt to the law, who interceded for us, who interposed for us, and gave his blood that we might be forgiven. And by faith, we receive his righteousness as our own white clothes and stand before you, boldly coming to you because of the way that he has opened. So receive our thanksgiving. And help us as we understand these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.